Now, if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We are at uh, verse 2 through 16 tonight as we continue our study in Corinthians. For the last few weeks, we have looked at the public worship of non-Christians around us, particularly in the Corinthian culture, and the relationship of Christians to those, such as eating meat sacrificed to idols and what to do about those things. Paul now, beginning here at chapter 11, verse 2, all the way through chapter 14, turns to the subject of Christian public worship services and gatherings. He wants things to be done decently and in order with decorum and mutual brotherly love. And Paul has to address a variety of disorders because the Corinthian church is messed up as all churches are in certain and various ways. They had three big problems. Uh, One was the abuse of the Lord's Supper. That's the end of chapter 11. Uh, One was the abuse of spiritual gifts. That's 12 through 14. And tonight we see their problem was with the way men and women are appearing and acting in public worship. Some in Corinth are by the way they dress and the way they act, diminishing the God-ordained distinction between the sexes. And they are then drawing attention to themselves and distracting others from the worship of God. Paul has to speak about these things to them. Let me invite you to hear God's word, and we'll ask him then afterwards to pray. Uh, We'll ask him in prayer. Uh, that we ourselves would profit by it. Uh, Hear now then God's word from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning at verse 2. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut her hair or off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? 
Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Amen. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we need you tonight. We pray that you would, by your spirit, open the eyes of our heart, that we would behold wonderful things in your word. Uh, Grant that we would truly understand uh, your world and your word the way that you understand them. I pray that you would help me keep my lips from error and grant that the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, in preparing to preach this message, I have often felt lost in tall grass. I have to say, and overwhelmed by all the questions uh, that uh, arose uh, in my mind, and perhaps in yours even as you were listening. I've taken comfort this week in Peter's words about Paul, that some things in Paul are hard to understand. And I've also been encouraged by the fact that the Bible is a thick book, in which the basic message of redemption through faith, in Christ the Messiah, is clear and easy to understand, even while some parts of the book keep me studying and studying. Uh, the Bible, some have said, rightly, I think, is a, shallow, is a pool shallow enough for a child to wade in and deep enough for an elephant to swim in. And it's good when a text keeps us saying, Lord, what does this mean? <laughs> Give me light. Help me understand. And so um, that's where I've been this week. And you're getting the best I've got, Lord willing. I think the best thing we can do tonight is uh, to set the, the passage in context. And then walk through it verse by verse as much as we can to catch Paul's teaching. And then try to make some application to ourselves in our day. Let me uh, say then in the first place about context. Two things. One is... The, the greater biblical context, and then the, the Corinthian context itself. Uh, on the one hand, there's the big picture story of the Bible, isn't there? In the beginning, you know the story. God created Adam, and it was not good that he should be alone. So God created Eve for him to be his wife and his friend and his lover in order to help him serve God and worship God to help him be fruitful and multiply, to help him have dominion over the earth. They were to do those things together as companions before the Lord. And our, both of our first parents were made in the image of God. Genesis is explicit. They were, they were made to be like God in knowledge and righteousness and holiness. And they were made to represent God on the earth, male and female, both. They were, they were equal. Each is the image of God. They were made equal, but they were different. They were complementary. Uh, Susan Hunt, uh, a PCA writer, asked her 8-year-old and 11-year-old granddaughters, who is better, boys or girls? There was an immediate consensus. 
girls, they said. So she taught them the truth. Boys are better at being boys. Girls are better at being girls. We are equal, but different. And it is very good because God said so. That is true, my friends. Men and women are different and distinct and are to relate to one another in a certain way because of that. The man was not a woman and the woman was not a man. Then God brought them together in marriage, just like a father walks his daughter down the aisle if he's able. God, as it were, brought Eve to Adam in marriage. And not just for their delight, though there were those, but also why? To picture God marrying his own people to himself in redemption. Christ, as you know, came to marry his bride and be her bridegroom. And in marriage, the husband is the head of the wife and the wife is, as it were, his body. A man is called to be like Christ to his wife, loving her and laying down his life for her. And a woman is to submit herself to him. That's Ephesians 5, like the church does to Christ. And what I'm saying is this. God is saying something about Christ and the church by the way men and women relate, not only in the institution of marriage, but even in the institution called the church. Evidently at Corinth, The Christians there had begun to downplay the differences between men and women. And Paul says, don't do that. The the differences are glorious and important. In the way that we live, God and his gospel are either on display or obscured. And this is a huge day. As as you all know, uh, this is a huge issue in our day. Um, Uh... In a variety of ways. Uh, Some may have heard this week about a Presbyterian church having a general assembly nationally. And I'll tell you right up front that that was not the PCA general assembly to to which we belong, but the PCUSA, Presbyterian Church, United States of America, uh, met in their national meeting just this week and they voted to have pastors officiate and bless gay and lesbian marriages. They have, frankly, abandoned 2,000 years of Christian history and teaching. Now, it doesn't come as a complete surprise to folks in the PCA who left the PCUSA for over 40 years ago. Because over 40 years ago, the PCUSA and its forefathers had begun to abandon the Bible as the full authority for what we should believe and how we should live. And they abandoned the Bible's view of the role of women in the ministry of the church. And now they're abandoning the Bible in God's view of what marriage is. So all of this, friends, is, it's, a, it's, a, it's a larger cultural effort to obliterate the distinctions between male and female. And many other denominations are doing likewise, interestingly, uh, most of the most, not all, of the old mainline denominations are headed this way, and most are also shrinking and growing smaller as they do so, while churches that hold to the authority of the Bible continue to grow, in part because we gather not to hear the opinion of church leaders. I mean, who really wants to do that for very long? But we gather to hear the truth of God, 
And God's blessing is on his word proclaimed and lived. And so there's this larger context of male-female relationships. And our culture is, is running as fast as it can away from God's ideas on this. Now there's also the Corinthian context. Two things were part of the normal everyday Corinthian culture. One has to do with hair length. In Corinth, it was standard accepted practice that in that day for men to wear their hair short and women to wear their hair long. There are literally hundreds and hundreds of sculptures and frescoes and pieces of pottery, all that illustrate that fact for us from history. Secondly, women did not wear their hair long in public. In the privacy of their homes, they might, but in public, going out, they wore it up, piled up in some way on their head, um, and positioned in a variety of different ways, but uh, sometimes held together on their head by being weaved through with expensive jewelry. The point is, though, that they wore their hair up, and it was considered disgraceful for a woman to wear it loose, flowing down the back. Loose hair was the sign of a loose woman. And it's not that sort of sign today, but it was back then. It's not as if Paul has a fixation here about making sure you've got a little piece of cloth on the top of your head just for the sake of doing so. And I would say this, we find no command anywhere in the Bible that women wear a head covering. Where they got this custom that Paul just assumes they have begun to abandon, we do not know. Where they got it, we don't know. But what concerned Paul was their rejection of it as it was a rejection of a culturally appropriate symbol of femininity. And for men to wear their hair long was a rejection of a culturally appropriate symbol of masculinity. And doing so was going to blur the distinctions between men and women. And these differences, God's word says, matter. God is saying something about himself and about the gospel through our sexual differences. So Paul has to remind them and correct them. Now let's hear what he teaches them. And let's walk through it in five or six things. He begins by commending them in verse 2. He commends them before he pounces at verse 3. On through the end of 14. I think he starts with commending them to soften the blow for what's about to come. And verse 3 is, I think, the key, the key teaching of the passage. Look at it. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of the wife is her husband, or the head of a woman is a man. And the head of Christ is God. Your, your translations may vary on whether it says woman or wife, man or husband. That's because in the Greek, uh, it is the word for man or woman, but that word can mean either, depending upon the context. And there are many things in this passage which suggest it, it, it has um, the context of married spouses, but then there are other things in the passage which suggest it may be beyond that. So what's he saying here? Well, he says uh, there's a head in each of these relationships. The head signifies one who is over another in a position of authority. Christ has authority over man, he says. Man has authority over the woman, and God the Father has authority over Christ. He's teaching us that biblical male-female role relations are a are a reflection of the relationship even within the Trinity itself. 
Right after saying the head of a wife is her husband, he directs them to think about the Trinity. Why? Because within the Trinity itself, we have an illustration of two persons. We have more than that, of course, but two persons of equal power and authority. God the Father, God the Son, who nevertheless have different roles in relation to one another. God the Son is equal to God the Father, yet the head of Christ, the Messiah, the God-man who is the Son of God in human flesh, the head of the Messiah is God, indicating that there's a certain order of things. It's not an ordering of power or divinity or substance of worth between God the Son and God the Father, but it's an ordering of relationship. And that's important because the way that we relate to one another in the church is to be a reflection of the way that God himself relates, Father to Son and Son to Father. Don't imagine, don't imagine that Paul has said anything here about inferiority. Neither inferior, inferiority on the part of Christ, nor on the part of women. That is, that is not what he is doing, uh, and very pointedly. Uh, but Christ, who is equal with the Father as the Son of God, is distinct from the Father and has a different function, even as a woman is equal to a man in the image of God and has a different function in the, in the home and in the church. And so Paul is trying to highlight this. He's showing you that the relationship between the Father, Son, and the Son and the church is to be reflected in our relationship. That's the key principle, I think. Verses 4 through 6 is, an, is um, how that principle worked itself out for the Corinthians. It worked itself out in public prayer and prophesying. So he says in verses 4 through 6, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. So he says, look, men are not to wear physical coverings over their head, a hat or a veil or whatever, uh, nor are they to wear long hair, he says at the end of the passage. Why? Because that's what women do, and men are to be different than women. And they're not to look like women as they pray and prophesy. Likewise, the Corinthian women, when they pray and prophesy, must do it with their heads covered. We we ask, we pause, what kind of covering is he talking about? He's talking about hats. Is he he talking about Islamic veils or burqas and whole body coverings? What are we talking about? Is he talking about long hair? Well, as far as we know, it's nothing like an Islamic veil. Church historians point out that there is no testimony anywhere from the early church that at any time any kind of veil that's practiced in Islam was ever practiced in any branch of Christians. So the veil is uh, out. That leaves something like a shawl or a small cloth or, or a hat or, or just her hair, long hair, uh, a head covering, a hat or hair itself, and it's very difficult here to decide between the two. I've gone back and forth all week long, and actually for months on that question, and I'm still torn between the two exactly. He closes the passage, speaking of her long hair being given as a covering. But in either case, whether it's some kind of hat or shawl or cloth or it's her hair, there is a woman's dignity being uh, put on display in her appearance In public worship and women who were in faithful marital relations were to wear their hair up when they were in public or covered. And the only women who didn't were prostitutes, immoral women and slave women who had their heads shaved. Otherwise, she had long hair. 
She didn't show it in public. It basically says, Paul, if she desires to be reputable, then she should dress reputably. And if she doesn't care about her reputation, dress like those who have no reputation. Verse 6. But again, Paul's point is the men and the women should look different. Men should look like men and they should act like it. Women should look like women and they should act like it. In verses 7 to 10, he, he gives you the reasons for it. He builds an argument from Adam and Eve. Um, a man, he says, ought not to cover his head. He's the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man, verse 7. For man was not made from woman, but woman from the man. He goes back to Genesis 1 and 2. The point of the passage is, is not that man is the image of God and that woman isn't the image of God. He doesn't say that. He passes over that, though he would affirm, as the rest of the Bible does everywhere else, and Paul affirms this elsewhere, that Genesis 1 and 2 teach both male and female are the image of God. Uh, the point, rather, is this, uh, the word glory. The man is the image and glory of God, and the woman is the glory of man. And what does that mean? Well, he goes on in verses 8 to 9, I think, to, to help us understand what he means by that. He speaks to the origin of the woman and the purpose for why she was made. Notice verses 8 and 9. The man isn't made from the woman, but the woman from the man. God made, he says, Adam from the dust of the earth, but God made Eve out of the rib of Adam. He's just walking you through that history. And by the way, as an aside, but let me say it this way. We see that the New Testament clearly and specifically authenticates the Genesis creation accounts on, on not just moral truths, but on specific historical facts. In fact, it's the historical fact of Eve coming from, being made from Adam, on which he builds his argument for the moral truth. Um, so these things, even the historical facts, have implications, Paul says. The man was not created then, why? Not for the woman, but the woman was created for the man. That's Genesis 2, that it, Adam, it was not good that he should be alone. He needed a helper suitable for him. And so God made him from the man, and God made her for the man. She is the glory of the man. And the man then honors God best when he is fulfilling the role for which God made him. Man honors God best by humbly assuming and carrying out the responsibilities given to him as head and using his authority in and for his family uh, and in and for the church. And a woman honors God best when she acknowledges by her life and her demeanor that she embraces and welcomes the unique role that God has given to her within her family and her church. So she should be different from the man. And that difference ought to show up in her appearance and in her attitude. She should have authority on her head, verse 10, or over her head. And there's, there's all kinds of confusion on what Paul means here. doesn't even say sign of, that's supplied. It just says she should have authority on her head. Uh, that's difficult to know exactly what he means. And then he goes, because of the angels, and nobody knows what he means. They, they all throw up their hands and speculate. Uh, 
Charles Hodge says this is one of the most difficult passages in the New Testament. I have some ideas on it, but nothing definitive for you can ask me later. So, um, look, now, now I realize, as you heard everything I just said, and that we think Paul is saying to us, you might leap to the idea, and wrongly, that a man has some kind of right or authority to trample on a woman. And that is completely false. And Paul, just to make sure you understand that's not true, in verses 11 and 12, qualifies everything he's just said and says this, Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For a woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. See, he gives a warning against those who would, who would misuse or abuse the teaching he just stated on our equality yet essential distinction and difference. You cannot turn around and trample on a woman because of this. There's no room for that. There's no room for the thinking that men are more important than women. Than women. That's not true. It's not that men are first and women are second. They're not varsity and she's junior varsity. Uh, it's, it's not that way at all. Just as the woman is not independent of the man, so also the man is not independent of the woman. She came from him. He actually comes or is born through her, is Paul's language. Speaking of biology here, we absolutely need one another. We're mutually dependent on one another. We are interconnected. We can't get along. We can't survive on our own, and we weren't meant to. We cannot exist Independently of one another, Paul says. So it, it gives you no right to take Paul's words and say, well, he could just run over her. So he qualifies what he says. Then in verses 13 through 15, I think you see the practical application to, I would argue, the specific situation in Corinth. Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? And does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? Paul expects them, judge for yourselves, to arrive at this conclusion for themselves. In Corinth, the men ought to keep their hair short. And the woman, he says, has been given long hair as a covering. Now, interestingly, long and short are comparative terms. Paul doesn't even tell them how long or how short. He doesn't, he doesn't specify. That's not the big issue of the text. The concern for Paul is that men look and act like men and women look and act like women and that we don't confuse the two just as we don't confuse God the Father and God the Son and just as we don't confuse Jesus the Lord and Savior of his church with his church. We shouldn't confuse any of these things. And so Paul says this is the practice or custom we have in all the churches. All the churches in the Greco-Roman Empire manifested the truth that the head of the man is Christ. The head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. And they did it in this way. Now that, I think, is the teaching of the passage. What are some of the implications or applications for us? Let me mention three areas. One, culture. One, or number two, dress. And three, the issue of submission. Culture. I do think this is culturally specific. And it's an example of the way that men and women ought to look and act different. And the principle matters. But the way in which it's manifested in different cultures, cultures like ours, is going to look different. And I think the Bible actually leads us to expect that. And let me show you why I think that. Let me give you some for instances. 
Number one, here's an example. A good example would be the Lord's command in John chapter 13, where he institutes the washing of one another's feet. Seventh-day Adventists today regard that as a commandment when Jesus told them to wash one another's feet, that we should, we should keep it in strict literal form. And so at their communion celebrations, the women wash one another's feet through the pantyhose. And when they do so, we, we kind of rightly feel like something was misunderstood. The Lord Jesus is calling us to humble ourselves in the place of a servant in order to love one another. But we keep that commandment today without making uh, others take their shoes and socks off so that we can literally wash their feet. Though in their culture, with dirty sandals, it was a perfect illustration and a great and actual activity Jesus did to manifest his love. But we don't do that. Another example would be this. Paul later in Corinthians, at the end of the book, he does this in Romans elsewhere, says, greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, right there, you can see this kind of an underlying principle at work, right? It's not hard to see. We should greet one another in the church, Paul says, warmly but chastely. But since in our culture, we generally don't greet one another with kisses, we should find, I would argue, a different and culturally appropriate way of expressing physically and warmly our welcome and affection for one another. In Spain or Greece or Latin America, people still kiss one another when they greet. But here in the USA, we might hug We might shake hands, and we might bump fists, and we might explode the fist and do the the octopus thing. (laughs) So those are a couple of examples, I think, of ways in which culturally we, we, we maintain the underlying principle, but we do something distinctively different. Now let me say a word about dress, and this actually is another illustration, I think, of that same point, but it points to the issue of dress and worship. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, which is one of very few other texts in in the New Testament dealing with some of the same kind of material. So it gives light on it, I think. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, written to Timothy, a minister who's going to organize God's church in a variety of places, at beginning at verse 8, he says to him, in the context of public worship, I want, he says, the men who are praying in public worship to have a certain attitude, not one of anger or quarreling. You see what he's saying. He knows how men are. Uh, Men can fight their war with one another while they say they're talking to God. You know, God straighten those people out. They can also express attitudes of anger and displeasure with other people while they're praying to God. Paul says there should be none of that in the public prayers of the people of God. And so he, he gives an attitude for men when they're praying. He goes right then into not the attitude, but, but the actions and appearance as well as the attitude of women. And he picks up for women these ideas. He says, he comments on them. He says that uh, nothing about her wearing a covering on her head, just that she shouldn't show off by her hairstyle and by the ostentatious wearing of jewelry or costly clothing. She shouldn't put herself on display. 
But rather, he says, adorn yourself with respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control and good works. He goes to the heart of her, and he wants an attitude of modesty, self-control, good works, and the appearance that reflects that. That seems to me to be the universal application. That's further, I think, confirmation that this is cultural in Corinthians, But it points even for us about the appropriate dress in the public gatherings of people, of God's people. Taking 1 Corinthians seriously does not mean we're going to have to start issuing head coverings or we're going to have to mandate hair lengths in the church. When my hair gets to about this length, I am so ready to get a high and tight military marine cut, which I never do because I look silly in it. And it's just the length at which Melina begins to really like the way my hair looks. We have this constant tension point. I'm always like, look how long it is. And my kids are like, Dad, your hair is really short. Um, we are not going to have a standard in the church and, and pull the ruler out and measure the length of your hair. That's not what Corinthians means. It does mean we shouldn't obscure our differences as men and women. Either by the way that we dress or we might say by the pronouncements we make about the acceptability of certain kinds of marriages between same-sex partners. We shouldn't obscure our masculinity and femininity, but we should give expression to our masculinity and femininity, femininity, but in ways that don't draw attention to ourselves nor distract others from worshiping God. I mean, it would have been a spectacle in public worship, for a a reputable woman come in with her head clean-shaven or not to wear her hair up. And it would have been a spectacle for a man to have long hair in the public worship gathering. Uh, And it would have drawn attention. So I'm not saying here that we need to dress like we're Amish. Uh, You don't have to wear blue denim. I know you're relieved. And it doesn't have to be down to your ankles. It's just that we shouldn't dress in a way that makes us self-conscious and focused on ourselves or that distracts others and draws attention to us because God is the focus of worship in worship and he is the only one whose glory should be on display. That, I think, gets to the issue of dress for us. And the final, final thing is this about submission. And I'm borrowing this from my old seminary professor and pastor, Ligon Duncan, when he says, isn't it beautiful that Paul gives an example here uh, of how Jesus is an example for both men and women. In this passage, Jesus is not just the Lord of the church and thus showing how men ought to relate to women, but he's the example of submission of the church to the Lord, to God the Father. As he submits to his heavenly father. And so the woman can look to Jesus as her example for how she relates as a wife to her husband or to the men in authority in the church. Just as men look to Jesus as the example for how to be a self-denying, self-sacrificing. And boy, none of us do that very well. uh, And interested in the best interest of our wives kinds of husbands. And interested in the best interests of the women in the church, kinds of men like Jesus is to the church. So Jesus, Ligon goes on to say, I think very rightly, Jesus is the example for men in how they relate to women, but he's also the example for women in how they relate to men. 
You remember Paul does this in Ephesians 5 when he says that the man should love his wife and he's the head of his wife. And how does he exercise that? He lays down his life in love for her. Now the woman is called to engage in a very difficult task of submitting herself in spiritual guidance and leadership, showing respect to a fallible, goofy man. And how do you do that? Well, it says Jesus submitted himself to the Father, and immediately the women of the church say, mm-hmm, yeah, Jesus got a perfect deity to submit himself to, and I've got Bozo the Clown over there. That's Ligon's joke. Well, do you remember, he goes on to say that in Isaiah 53, the Father, in his relationship to his Son, it says that it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He put him to grief and in the garden of Gethsemane do you remember Jesus praying father if it is possible let this cup pass from me nevertheless not my will but your will be done and suddenly you realize that Jesus submission in the great work of redemption was the most difficult submission anyone has ever accomplished and so in your situation however difficult it is as a woman. Your challenge of spiritual respect for the spiritual leadership of a man is trumped by the difficulty of Jesus' own submission of his own will to the will of his heavenly Father when it meant that he was going to be crushed for you. And in that way, both men and women are called to die to ourselves in our relationships to one another. And so reflect the relationship of God the Father and God the Son and reflect the relationship of the Lord and Savior of his church and that church in submitting to him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, we feel insufficient for our responsibilities before you as men and women. And we have failed time and again to be what you have created and intended and even redeemed us to be. Forgive us. Help us to forgive one another. Help us by your spirit, whom you delight to give to those who ask. Help us to walk in your ways and in mutual love. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.